Chapter thirty of the Crown of Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Crown of Life by George Gissing. Chapter thirty. At home again, Piers wrote to Olga, the greater part of the letter being occupied with an account of what had happened in Liverpool. It was not a love letter, yet differed in tone from those he had hitherto written her. He spoke with impatience of the circumstances which made it difficult for them to meet, begged that it might not be long before he saw her again. Olga's reply came quickly. It was frankly intimate, with no suggestion of veiled feeling. Her mother's letters, she said, were in Dr. Derwent's hand. I told him who had given them to me, and how you obtained them. I doubt whether he will have anything to say to me about them, but that doesn't matter. He knows the truth. As for their meeting, any Sunday afternoon would find her at Miss Bonnycastle's in Great Portland Street. I wish I were living there again, she added. My uncle is very kind, but I can't feel at home here, and I hope I shall not stay very long. So on the next Sunday, Piers wended his way to Great Portland Street. Arriving about three o'clock, he found the artist of the posters sitting alone by her fire, legs crossed and cigarette in mouth. "'Oh, Mr. Otway!' she exclaimed, turning her head to see who entered in reply to her cry of, "'Don't be afraid!' Without rising, she held a hand to him. "'I didn't think I should ever see you here again. How are you getting on? Beastly afternoon. Come and warm your toes.' The walls were hung with clever brutalities of the usual kind. Piers glanced from them to Miss Bonnycastle, speculating curiously about her. He had no active dislike for this young woman, and felt a certain respect for her talent. But he thought, as before, how impossible it would ever be to regard her as anything but an abnormality. She was not ill-looking, but seemed to have no single characteristic of her sex which appealed to him. "'What do you think of that?' she asked abruptly, handing him an illustrated paper which had lain open on her lap. The page she indicated was covered with some half-dozen small drawings, exhibiting scenes from a popular café in Paris, done with a good deal of vigour and some skill in the seizing of facial types. "'Your work?' he asked. "'Mine!' she cried scoffingly. "'I could no more do that than swim the channel. <laughs> Look at the name, can't you?' He found it in a corner. "'Kite? Our friend?' "'That's the man. <laughs> He's been looking up since he went to Paris.' Some things of his in a French paper had a lot of praise. Nude figures, queer symbolical stuff, they say, but uncommonly well done. I haven't seen them. In London they'd be called indecent, the man said, who was telling me about them. Of course that's rot. He'll be here in a few days, Olga says. She hears from him. Oh, it was a surprise letter. He addressed it to this shop and I sent it on. "'That's only pot-boiling, of course,' she snatched back the paper. "'But it's good in its way, don't you think?' Oh, "'Very good. "'We must see the other things they talk about, the nudes.' There was a knock at the door. "'Come along!' cried Miss Bonnycastle, craning back her head to see who would enter. And on the door opening, she uttered an exclamation of surprise. "'Well, this is a day of the unexpected. "'Didn't know you were in England.' Piers saw a slim, dark, handsome man, who, in his elegant attire, rather reminded one of a fashion-plate. 
he came briskly forward smiling as if in extreme delight and bent over the artist's hand raising it to his lips now you'd never do that said miss bonnycastle addressing otway with an air of mock gratification this is mr florio the best behaved man i know signor you've heard us speak of mr otway behold him ah mr otway mr otway cried the italian joyously permit me the pleasure to shake hands with you one more english friend i collect english friends as others collect pictures and bric-a-brac and what you will indeed it is my pride to add to the collection my privilege my honour after exchange of urbanities he turned to the exhibition on the walls and exhausted his english in florid eulogy not a word of which but sounded perfectly sincere from this he passed to a glorification of the art of advertisement it was the triumph of our century the supreme outcome of civilization otway amusedly observant asked with a smile what progress the art was making in italy progress cried florio with an indescribable gesture italy and progress yet he proceeded with a change of voice where would italy be but for advertisements italy lives by advertisements she is the best advertised country in the world suppose the writers and painters cease to advertise italy suppose it were no more talked about suppose foreigners cease to come what would happen to italy i ask you his face conveyed so wonderfully the suggestion of ravenous hunger that miss bonnycastle screamed with laughter piers did not laugh and turned away for a moment soon after there entered olga hannaford seeing the two men she reddened and looked confused but miss bonnycastle's noisy greeting relieved her her hand was offered first to otway who pressed it without speaking their eyes met and to piers it seemed that she made an appeal for his forbearance his generosity the behaviour of the italian was singular mute and motionless he gazed at olga with a wonder which verged on consternation when she turned towards him he made a profound bow as though he met her for the first time don't you remember me mr florio she asked in an uncertain voice oh indeed perfectly was the stammered reply he took her fingers with the most delicate respectfulness again bowing deeply then drew back a little his eyes travelling rapidly to the faces of the others as if seeking an explanation miss bonnycastle broke the silence saying they must have some tea and calling upon olga to help her in preparing it for a minute or two the men were left alone florio approaching piers on tiptoe whispered anxiously miss hannaford is in mourning ah her mother is dead with a gesture of desolation the italian moved apart and stood staring absently at a picture on the wall for the next quarter of an hour he took scarcely any part in the conversation his utterances were grave and subdued repeatedly he glanced at olga and if able to do so unobserved let his eyes rest upon her with agitated interest but for the hostess there would have been no talk at all and even she fell far short of her wonted vivacity when things were at their most depressing 
someone knocked who's that i wonder said miss bonnycastle all right she called out come along a head appeared a long pale nervous countenance with eyes that blinked as if in too strong a light miss bonnycastle started up clamouring an excited welcome olga flushed and smiled it was kite who advanced into the room on seeing olga he stood still and became painfully embarrassed and could make no answer to the friendly greetings with which miss bonnycastle received him forced into a chair at length and sitting sideways with his long legs intertwisted and his arms fidgeting about he made known that he had arrived only this morning from paris and meant to stay in london for a month or two oh, perhaps longer it depended on circumstances his health seemed improved but he talked in the old way vaguely languidly yes he had had a little success but it amounted to nothing his work oh, rubbish rubbish thereupon the cafe sketches in the illustrated papers were shown to florio who poured forth exuberant praise a twinkle of pleasure came into the artist's eyes but the uh, other things we heard about said miss bonnycastle the uh, what do you call em the uh, figures kite shrugged his shoulders and looked uneasy oh, oh pot boilers poor stuff happened to catch people's eyes who told you about them oh, some man oh i forget and what are you doing now oh nothing a, a little black and white for that thing he pointed contemptuously to the paper keeps me from idleness where are you going to live oh i don't know i shall find a garret somewhere do you know of one about here olga's eyes chanced to meet a glance from otway she moved and hesitated and rose from her chair kite and the italian gazed at her and then cast a look at each other then both looked at otway who had at once risen do you walk home said piers stepping toward her i'd better have a cab it was said in a quietly decisive tone and piers made no reply both took leave with few words olga descended the stairs rapidly and without attention to her companion turned at a hurried pace down the dark street they had walked nearly a hundred yards when she turned her head and spoke can't you suggest some way for me to earn my living i mean it i must find something have you spoken to your uncle about it asked piers mechanically no it's difficult if i could go to him with something definite have you spoken to your cousin olga delayed an instant and answered with an embarrassed abruptness she's gone to paris before piers could recover from his surprise she had waved to an empty hansom driving past think about it she added and write to me i must do something this life of loneliness and idleness is unbearable and piers thought to little purpose for his mind was once again turned to irene and it cost him a painful effort to dwell upon olga's circumstances he postponed writing to her until shame compelled him and the letter he at length dispatched seemed so empty so futile that he could not bear to think of her reading it with astonishment he received an answer so gratefully worded that it moved his heart she would reflect on the suggestions he had made moreover as he advised 
she would take counsel frankly with the doctor, and whatever was decided he should hear at once. She counted on him as a friend, a true friend. In truth, she had no other. He must continue to write to her, but not often, not more than once a fortnight or so, and let him be assured that she never for a moment forgot her lifelong debt to him. This last sentence referred no doubt to her mother's letters. Dr. Derwent, it seemed, would make no acknowledgment of the service rendered him by a brother of the man whom he must regard as a pitiful scoundrel. How abhorred by him must be the name of Otway! And could it be less hateful to his daughter, to Irene? The days passed. A pleasant surprise broke the monotony of work and worry, when one afternoon the office boy handed in a card bearing the name Korolevich. The Russian was spending a week in London, and Otway saw him several times. On one occasion they sat talking together till three in the morning. To Piers this intercourse brought vast mental relief, and gave him an intellectual impulse of which he had serious need in his life of solitude, ever tending to despondency. Korolevich, on leaving England, volunteered to call upon Moncharmont at Odessa. He had wool to sell, and why not sell it to his friends? But he, as well as Piers, looked for profit of another kind from this happy acquaintance. It was not long before Otway made another call upon Miss Bonnycastle, and this time, as he had hoped, he found her alone, working. He led their talk to the subject of Kite. "'You ought to go and see him in his garret,' said Miss Bonnycastle. "'He'd like you to.' "'Tell me, if you know,' threw out the other, looking into her broad, good-natured face, "'is he still interested in Miss Hannaford?' "'Why, of course! He's one of the stupids who keep up that kind of thing for a lifetime. But he that will not when he may—' oh, "'Poor silly fellow!' How oh, I should enjoy boxing his ears! They laughed, but Miss Bonnycastle seemed very much in earnest. He's tormenting his silly self, she went on, because he's been unfaithful to her. There was a girl in Paris. Oh, he tells me everything. We're good friends. The girl over there did him enormous good, that's all I know. It was she that set him to work and supplied him with his model at the same time. What better could have happened? And now the absurd creature has qualms of conscience. Well, said Piers, smiling uneasily, it's intelligible. Oh, bosh! Don't be silly. A man has his work to do, and he must get what help he can. I shall pack him off back to Paris. I'll go and see him, I think. About the Italian Florio... "'Has he also an interest?' "'In Olga? Oh, yes, I fancy he has. "'But I don't know much about him. "'He comes and goes on business. "'There's a chance, I think, of his dropping in for money before long. "'He isn't a bad sort. What do you think?' "'That same afternoon, Piers went in search of Kite's garret. "'It was a garret, literally, furnished with a table and a bed and little else, "'but a large fire burned cheerfully.' and on the table beside a drawing-board stood a bottle of wine. When he had welcomed his visitor, Kite pointed to the bottle. "'I got used to it in Paris,' he said, "'and it helps me to work. 
i shan't offer you any or you might be made ill the cheapest claret on the market but it reminds me of of things there rose in otway's mind a suspicion that to-day at all events kite had found his cheap claret rather too seductive his face had an unwonted warmth of colour and his speech an unusual fluency presently he opened a portfolio and showed some of the work he had done in paris drawings in pen and ink and the published reproductions of others these latter he declared were much spoilt in the process work the motif was always a nude female figure of great beauty the same face with much variety of expression for background all manner of fantastic scenes or rather glimpses and suggestions of a poet's dreamland you see what i mean said kite it's simply woman as a beautiful thing as a oh, i can't get it into words an ideal you know something to live for put her in a room it becomes a different thing do you feel my meaning english people wouldn't have these you know they don't understand they call it sensuality sensuality cried piers after dreaming for a moment great heavens then why are human bodies made beautiful the artist gave a strange laugh of gratification there you hit it why why the work of the devil they say the worst of it is said piers that they're right as regards most men beauty as an inspiration exists only for the few beauty of any and every kind it's all the same there's no safety for the world as we know it except in utilitarian morals later when he looked back upon these winter months piers could distinguish nothing clearly it was a time of confused and obscure motives of oscillation of dreary conflict of dull suffering his correspondence with olga his meetings with her had no issue he made a thousand resolves a thousand times he lost them but for the day's work which kept him in an even tenor for a certain number of hours he must have drifted far and perilously it was a life of solitude the people with whom he talked were mere ghosts intangible not of his world sometimes amid a crowd of human beings he was stricken voiceless and motionless he stared about him and was bewildered asking himself what it all meant his health was not good he suffered much from headaches he fell into languors lassitude of body and soul as a result imagination seemed to be dead in him the torments of desire were forgotten when he heard that irene derwent had returned to london the news affected him only with a sort of weary curiosity was it true that she would not marry arnold jacks it seemed so he puzzled over the story wondered about it but only his mind was concerned never his emotions once he was summoned to queen's gate john jacks lay on a sofa in his bedroom he talked as usual but in a weaker voice and had the face of a man doomed piers saw no one else in the house and on going away felt that he had been under that roof for the last time his mind was oppressed with the thought of death as happens probably to every imaginative man at one time or another 
he had a conviction that his own days were drawing to a premature close speculation about the future seemed idle he had come to the end of his hopes and fears night after night his broken sleep suffered the same dream he saw mrs hannaford who stretched her hands to him and with a face of silent woe seemed to implore his help help against death and his powerlessness wrung his heart with anguish waking he thought of all the women beautiful tender objects of infinite passion and worship who even at that moment lay smitten by the great destroyer the gentle the loving racked disfigured flung into the horror of the grave and his being rose in revolt he strove in silent agony against the dark ruling of the world one day there was of tranquil self-possession of blessed calm a sunday in january when he knew not how he found himself amid the sussex lanes where he had rambled in the time of harvest the weather calm and dry and mild but without sunshine soothed his spirit he walked for hours and toward nightfall stood upon a wooded hill gazing westward an overcast and yet not a gloomy sky still soft dappled with rifts and shimmerings of pearly blue scattered among multitudinous billows which here were a dusky yellow and there a deep neutral tint in the low west beneath the long dark edge a soft splendour figured with airy cloudlets waited for the invisible descending sun moment after moment the rifts grew longer the tones grew warmer above began to spread a rosy flush in front the glory brightened touching the cloud line above it with a tender crimson if all days could be like this one could live so well he thought in mere enjoyment of the beauty of earth and sky all else forgotten under this soft dusking heaven death was welcome rest and passion only a tender sadness he said to himself that he had grown old in hopeless love only to doubt in the end whether he had loved at all end of chapter thirty